ready? The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win, may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching as both the Father and the Son has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Thank you, Mark. Morning, church. So we're about to step into a two-week series on two whole books of the Bible. Second and Third John, the two shortest books in the New Testament. And this will bring our series on the letters of John to an end. After that, we're going to go back to the book of Genesis, and we're going to spend the rest of the year studying the life of Abraham, which will be so exciting. But for the next two weeks, we're going to be right here in 2nd and 3rd John. Now, 2nd and 3rd John deal with a very similar question. How are we supposed to treat traveling missionaries who come and want to sleep over at our house. Which sounds completely irrelevant, because that's never happened to me, and I'm not sure it ever will. However, the truths in these two letters, in these two books, absolutely apply to us today, and we need these things, and the reason that God put them in the Bible is because they're for us. And so we're going to take a little time to look at a part of the Bible I haven't taken much time to look at, a part of the Bible not many of us have taken much time to look at, and see what God has to show us. Now, these traveling missionaries who had come to these churches in the early church had a profound impact on them. They would shape how they saw Jesus. They would shape how they saw the Bible. And if they were a false teacher or a false missionary, they could lead people astray and destroy the church. And so 2 John is going to focus on protecting the church. We might not have false missionaries trying to come stay at our houses, but we have false influences who are trying to separate us and divide us from Jesus. And so we need this letter because we need to protect our church and our gathering and our people. How many of you have felt yourself gradually drifting away from Jesus in some area of your life in the last few months. That's you. This letter is for you. How many of you have noticed 
one of your brothers or sisters in Christ drifting away from Jesus in the last few weeks or months. If that's you, this letter is for you. I know as pastors, our hearts have been heavy the last few weeks as we've seen this very thing happen, and this letter is to us so that we can keep it from happening in the future. If you're a visitor here and not yet a follower of Jesus, we're so happy we're here. you're here. And we really hope that you hear about God's heart of love and protection for his people in this letter and that he wants to have that same heart for you. And that heart is available to you if you come to him. And so let's jump in. Let's jump into 2 John together. We're going to go through a three-point outline to help us just see the flow of the, of the writing and what John is saying. Point one is the elect lady. The elect lady. Point two will be the lady is in danger. And point three will be protect her. So let's start with point one, the elect lady from verses one through three. I'm going to read these again. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. So John begins by referring to himself as the elder. He's an authoritative apostle, and he's writing to a church somewhere in modern-day Asia, probably near a city called Ephesus in Turkey, with authority. And who's he writing to? If you look at your Bible, it says that he's writing to the elect lady and her children, which is a really strange and mysterious person to write to. Like, on one hand, you could think, is he writing to some distinguished lady in the church? Like, is there a leader, a female leader in the church that he's writing to, and he also wants to address her children because they're influential too? Right? That's one possibility. But as we keep looking at the letter... That's not very likely at all. Because if you skip down to verse 5, he addresses this lady again. And he says, And now I ask you, dear lady, to love one another. So the lady isn't one person. The lady is a community of people. Later in the letter, at the very end, actually in the last verse, John's going to write, The children of the elect sister greets you, which sounds a lot like one church greeting another church. And so as we look at this letter, I think what we discover is that John writing to the elect lady and the children is his creative way of referring to a particular church that he's writing to. The lady is the whole church together, and the children are each of the particular members of the church. Now, okay, that might make sense, but you might ask, like, but why? Why would he do that? And I suspect that John is tapping into a larger theme in the Bible in which God talks about his people as his bride. The prophets will talk about God being married to his people. John's last book, the book of Revelation, the lamb will come, Jesus, and marry his bride who are his people. So what this does is it reminds us of how God views his church. She's his chosen lady. Husbands, 
Your wife is your chosen lady. She's the one you've chosen to care for, to spend all your time with, to lay down your life for, to have children with, if the Lord gives them. Right? There's a powerful bond of affection between a husband who cares for his wife. And that image is meant to teach us about how God cares for his church. God loves the church as he would love his bride. How much would Jesus love his wife if he married a human lady? It would be perfect. He would do so good. And that's God's heart for the church. And what I want to see is that that's his heart for this church. That's how God feels about this church. This church is one example of his bride. There's thousands of examples of God's bride all over the world. This is one example of that bride. Right? It's an image that incorporates all the men and all the women in the church. We're all together God's bride, which is really strange for guys to think about, but it's true. And so the first challenge I have for us this morning is how do you feel about this church? How do you feel about this church? And when I say this church, I don't mean the APC logo. I mean the specific people who are sitting around you right now. How do you feel about those people? Are you passionate about them? That's a challenging question. Are you passionate about the people you're worshiping Jesus with? I want to grow in that way. Jesus laid down his life for the bride. Are you striving to grow to care about the other people in this church so much that you lay down your life for them, for their good? It's the kind of way God thinks about the church and wants us to think about the church. It's his chosen lady. And if God chooses this lady, shouldn't we? If God chooses this lady, shouldn't we? And God didn't choose this lady, God didn't choose us because we're so lovely and worthy of his affection and love. He chose us because it's his heart to do so. And so if he does it, then should not we? So it's no surprise then that John writes in the very next verse to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Part of knowing the truth is loving God's people. We cannot choose Jesus and not choose his people. Which, lead John, which leads John to his very next statement. When you can hear his love in this verse, he says, Grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in grace and truth. Okay, so that's point one. The elect lady that's who John is writing to, which leads us to point two, the lady is in danger. The lady is in danger, and we see that in these next verses, verses four through seven. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay, let's observe four quick things from this section. One, in verse four, John says he rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Does that strike anyone as strange? 
Wouldn't you expect him to say, I rejoice to find many of your children walking in the truth, or all of your children walking in the truth, but rather he says, I rejoice to find some of your children walking in the truth, which indicates that he was really worried about this church. He was really worried that some threat had come and maybe destroyed the entire church and there were no believers left in this church that he helped lead. But he found this church standing. And so he says that God has spared it and he's rejoicing that God has guarded this church through a dangerous trial, which we're going to see more about what that trial is as we keep moving through this letter. Observation two. John seeks to fortify and protect this church community by reminding them of the inseparability of love and truth. Right? As we walk through the first parts of this letter, he keeps repeating the words love and truth. They're everywhere. Love, truth, love, truth, love, truth. They go together. And verse 6 is going to define what loving one another means. And it's very interesting. It says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Walking in love equals walking according to God's commandments. You see that, that equality? Walking in love equals walking according to God's commandments. And this means that God's word determines our definition of love. Let me say that again. That means God's word determines our definition of love. At all times and at every place, People are going to agree that it's good to love other people. The disagreement comes down to who defines what is love and what's unloving. And so this is giving a hint to the danger that this lady is in, this church is in, is that someone else is trying to come in and redefine the truth so that they can redefine what's the definition of love. John's point here is that if his people are going to persevere in staying in love with Jesus and his church. We need God's rather than, our own's definition, rather than our own definition of love. We need his commands to guide us. His commands are a guide to us. I want us to grow in thinking of his commands not as a restraint on us that keeps us back from doing what we want, but as a guide that keeps us heading in the direction that's good for us and good for other people. It's God's commands that actually make us an extension of his heart towards other people. His commands enable your and my lives to be directed in such a way that we become an extension of his heart towards other people. And you cannot be that without his commands. So there's this psalm, it's called Psalm 119, and David just celebrates how much he loves the laws and commands of God. And it's really strange to us because who wants laws and commands? Well, we do because we want to love other people like God does, and they're our guide towards loving other people. We need the truth to show us what love is so we can actually love people. True love is not my will be done, as the world insists. It's rather thy will be done on heaven as it is on earth. And as we live by God's commandments, as we live by God's commandments together, we increasingly bring heaven to earth as we live how God would live if he were us. So commandment keeping is about bringing the presence of God to earth and living how he would live if he were you. Observation three, insisting on the truth does not drive us apart, but binds us together. 
So often in our lives, we think that someone who is convictional about truth, that's going to be the opposite of love because they're going to separate you from people. But on the contrary, insisting on the truth does not drive us apart, but binds us together. Our love for one another should increase for one another because we share the most important things in common. So when you share with someone else the deepest and most important things, that actually has the effect of binding you together with them. Disunity and strife comes into our community when someone departs from God's truth and insists on their own way. So when when someone departs from the truth, that's actually when we start to feel the ruptures in our church family. So John Stott puts it this way, we are bound to our fellow Christians by the special bond of truth. We love one another, not because we are compatible or because we are naturally drawn to one another, but because of the truth that we share. And that rings true to this family, doesn't it? I don't think many of us would naturally hang out if it wasn't for Jesus. We're very different people, very different personalities. Some of us have difficult personalities. And yet here we are following him together, trying to do life together, trying to make disciples together. What is it that's knitting our hearts together? And the answer, part of the answer is that we share the most deep things in common with each other. Like I share the deepest, more, the deepest things in common with you more than I share it with my natural family who doesn't know Jesus yet. What a foundation on which to build together, right church? And so it's when we lose that deep foundation, right, of being united together, of sharing the same truth together, that we start to drift apart from one another. And that seems to be what's going on here in this church community that John is writing to because he says in verse 7, this is observation 4, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So John calls the ones who are attacking this church and coming against this church deceivers, which means that they are distorting the truth. So to attack truth is to attack love, and that's precisely what's happening in this church. It says that such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. And an antichrist. An antichrist simply means an instead of Christ. It's someone who opposes Jesus by providing an alternative to Jesus. So any deception in your life that encourages you to have a higher priority than Jesus is an antichrist. Any person, any influence you are having in your life that's encouraging you to replace Jesus with something else as your highest priority is an antichrist. And notice how it doesn't even say that these deceivers deny Christ. They just don't confess him. So a deceiver can be deceptive. A deceiver doesn't have to say, I'm against Jesus. A deceiver just has to come into your life and subtly influence you to place something above Jesus. If Jesus is the source of life, if Jesus is the source of life, and a deception subtly gets you to direct your life somewhere else, they've succeeded in bringing death. And the crazy thing is, is you can keep confessing Jesus with your lips and keep saying he's Lord. It's the direction of your life and behavior that shows what your heart is loyal to. And so a deceiver will probably try to come and encourage you to keep showing up, to keep saying you love Jesus, but then to subtly start to direct your life towards something other than him. That one's a deceiver and an antichrist. That one is attacking the truth. 
These deceivers appear in all times and in all places until Jesus comes back. They had probably wreaked havoc on John's church, and the enemy wants to wreak havoc on this church. He does not like what's going on here with us gathering to worship Jesus. He does not like what we're doing here, desiring to plant churches in these cities and all over the world to mat- multiply worshipers of Jesus. And so we should expect deception that's meant to destroy us and destroy this family. Do you guys feel that? If you feel like you're going to sleep in your Christian life, it's because it's the way of the world and the influence of the world that's trying to keep you from being on fire for Jesus. We should expect deception. We should expect deceivers. As I was saying in point two, the lady is in danger. The church is always in danger until Jesus comes back and brings her safely home. Which leads us to point three, protect her. Protect her. Let's take a look at verses 8 through 10. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Forever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Okay, let's make four more observations. One, these two words, watch yourself, could be translated as be on your guard. Be on your guard. Let's hear this commandment addressed to each of us specifically right now from God. Be on your guard. This is a call towards vigilance, protection, and defense. All of the verbs in verse 8 are plural. They're not singular. They're addressing, they're addressing a, uh, an audience of people, which means that John is calling that whole community to be on, the, on guard. He's not just calling each of us specifically to be on guard. He's calling this whole church community to be on our guard together. Two, verse 8 says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but gained a full reward. The stakes of deception cannot be higher. The stakes of deception could not be higher. If any of us are deceived away from following Jesus, it could bring eternal consequences to us if we don't return to him. We could lose everything we've worked for, not gain our full reward, And what's worse, if you or I are deceived and we depart from Jesus, we could take our brothers and sisters with us. Right? Your being deceived could bring about the destruction of someone else whom you're called to love and protect and guard. I'm just trying to say the stakes could not be higher. Watch out that you may not lose what you have worked for, but gain a full reward. This brings us to our main point this morning. The one thing I want us to walk away with together is that we must protect this church community. We must protect this church community. If this is God's chosen lady, if this church is this valuable to his heart, then we must protect her. We must guard ourselves and one another from deceptions. One way you could think about your call as a Christian is that you are a priest in God's kingdom. You're a priest in God's kingdom. 
And one thing that priests do throughout the Bible is they protect. A priest protects. If you read the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, God commands the priests to guard sacred space. There's a tabernacle, there's a temple, and the priests are the guardians of that sacred space. The very first priest in the Bible, Adam, is the guardian, guardian of the very first sacred space, the garden. God actually commands him in the book of Genesis to guard the garden. He's supposed to guard the garden from deceptive snakes. So even the first sacred space in the very beginning of the Bible had a deceiver and an antichrist, and there was a guardian, a priest, who was meant to keep watch over that sacred space. Now God is calling me and you to guard the sacred space of his church from deception. The sacred space is not a physical location. It's the hearts and souls of yourself and those who are sitting around you. This is your mission. This is your call. This is one of your identities as a Christian. You are a priest guarding the sacred space where our God has worked in the hearts of people to bring them to himself, and you are the guardian of other people. That is what God has called you to do, to be a guardian, to get other people safely home to heaven and keep them from being deceived. If you're a member of this church and you just feel like you attend, but you don't take much ownership yet, I want to invite you to step up, to step up. Among other things, God wants to make you a guardian of our community. This is a beautiful church. It's a fragile church, and we must keep it safe. We just made it to five years by the grace of God, and there have been attacks and dangers that have come against us. And he'll keep us still because he's good, and he wants to use us. He wants to use you. He wants to use me as a protector of this community to get us into the next five years and the next five years and the next five years after that. And so your watch has begun. Your God has given you a job. He has called you into a role through Jesus Christ. Let us grow in being vigilant to not lose what we have worked for, but to protect it. Verse 9 says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. The way we protect this community is by paying attention to the teaching. By paying attention to the teaching. God is not looking for physically strong people who can defend people from physical threats. He's looking for spiritually strong people who can defend people from spiritual threats which means that he's looking for us to know our Bibles and be bold with our Bibles. The deception of a snake will look like an idea or a thought or an influence that is contrary to the scriptures. And being a guardian in that moment looks like opening your Bible with your brother or sister or your own heart, showing someone a truth in God's word that shows them the right way and inviting them to repent and follow Jesus. If you do that, if you have that kind of habit in your life, you're the kind of person filled with the Holy Spirit who does those kinds of things to keep your brothers and sisters safe, you're guarding this church. That's the kind of person God is looking for, someone to protect his community through spiritual truth. Deceptions come in every realm of life through all kinds of people and platforms, from personal relationships to mass media. When you feel temptation about how you use wealth, practice sexuality, respond to someone else when they hurt you in this community, at that moment, your own heart and the community is at stake. Whenever you feel temptation, your own heart and the community is at stake. So in those 
moments when you feel confused, tempted, or deceived, please flee to a brother and sister and ask them to pray with you and look at God's word with you. When you notice another person in the community confused or tempted or deceived, please go to them and show them God's word and pray with them and help them repent and see Jesus. And also, don't isolate yourself from the community. Think about that. If we're strong when we're together, if we protect one another when we're together, how vulnerable are we when we're on our own? Please don't leave the community. Stay a part of it so that you can be kept safe and you can keep other people safe from the enemy. Now, in the next verse, John's going to give one response we should have to a false teacher. So let's read that. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him in your house or give him any greeting. Don't even say hi to him. Forever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Does that verse confuse anyone else? This is a verse about protecting our community, so we want to take it seriously, but we want to apply it cautiously. We want to take it seriously, but we want to apply it cautiously. In John's context, there were traveling missionaries who were leading Christians astray and dividing the church. So it wouldn't apply to someone who's coming into our church, who doesn't believe in Jesus, who's not actively dividing and deceiving the church. So if someone is not a clear and present danger to the church, I don't think this verse would apply to them. So you can and must practice hospitality with people who don't know Jesus yet. Actually, Jesus did it all the time. So his example was that we should practice hospitality with people who don't know him yet, as long as they're judged not to be a clear and present threat to the church. You should try to draw this kind of boundary if someone is influencing or threatening the flock with harm. I still even think that you could have like a Mormon neighbor or someone like that over to your house. So I just found out that I live next door to someone who, who's part of the Mormon faith. And some people might say, you know, that's a false teacher. You can't have him in your home. And according to this verse, I would say, I don't think they see the word of God rightly yet. I don't think they see Jesus rightly yet, but I don't think they're an active threat to my faith or an active threat to your faith. And so I want to invite them over and love them like Jesus loved me and help them to see the way, the truth, and the life rather than over applying this verse and drawing a boundary that the Lord never drew. Here's one example of what this might look like today. If we had a member in our community whom God saved from a lifestyle of addiction and there was someone who was trying to actively influence them back into a lifestyle of addiction, a good boundary would be to not invite the person who's trying to influence the other person over while the person battling addiction is there. So don't put those two people in the same room. If you have someone who is trying to flee from addiction or some other sin, and there's someone else who's pursuing them, trying to bring them back into the darkness, bring them back into destruction, now all of a sudden you have to use your home as a boundary and protect that person while they're in there and not greet and invite that person in. That's one example of what this could look like applied rightly in today. And so we never apply unnecessary boundaries to the gospel, yet we apply wise boundaries to the gospel. And how this applies in every situation, you have to be wise. 
There's 10,000 ways this could apply, and you have to be wise and seek God and ask, how do I use my home? How do I use my authority in my life? How do I use my different spaces and relationships to get as many people to heaven as possible? So please, never make an unnecessary boundary that keeps someone from coming to Jesus, and please don't fail to protect the brother or sister you're supposed to, and please prayerfully ask God for wisdom so that you know the difference. This leads us back to, where, to the heart of this sermon. We must protect this community together. We do that by walking in truth and love, by being vigilant about the truth as a means of loving. One of our core values as a church is love his. And one way we love his family is we protect his family. Protection is a means of love. And walking in the truth is a means of love. To adopt this mindset is nothing less than adopting the mindset of Christ. Christ suffered, bled, and died for his bride, the church, in order to protect her from Satan and sin and get her safely home to himself. That's what the ultimate example of protection looks like. Jesus laying down his life to get his people safely to him. Adam, the first guardian, the first priest, he failed to protect his lady Eve. Jesus did not. Jesus succeeded in protecting us from sin and Satan and getting us to our Father. And he's going to protect us and bring us safely home to be with himself. When we lay down our lives to protect Jesus' church, our lives beautifully point to the one who died to rescue us from sin and death. This is a good calling for us, to be like Jesus in protecting other Christians. This is a good calling for us, and I want to invite you, church, would you join me in this? Would you join me in being a protector and guardian of those Jesus shed his blood for to protect? If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you need the greatest protection of all. His blood is the greatest protection of all. It covers you. It covers you and takes away all your sin. It covers you and protects you from the wrath of God. I just want to invite you to come to him and enter into this community. So if you don't know him yet, our deepest desire is that you would. And we ask that you talk to me or any of our members of our church. If you just want to know more and have any questions, please don't leave here without the protection that God is offering you through his son, Jesus. Then John concludes his letter with some personal affection for these believers. And I'll just let these words speak for themselves. He ends his letter. He says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Church, we have so many other churches in this city with us and in this world who are fighting the same fight, and so we should be encouraged as we do it that we're just one example of Christ's bride in one city fulfilling his global purposes. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this letter. It's short. It's near the back of our Bibles, and we often miss it, but it's for our good. And I ask that it would be for our good this morning. I ask that we would be our brothers and sisters' keeper, that we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't back down from the opportunity to defend and protect them, but that we would stride forward into it and make their welfare our chief concern, God, so may more of us get safely home to you, Father, because we protected one another, prayed for one another, and spent time in your word together. Thank you for this morning and all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.